Well, good evening. How you guys doing? Well, you can open with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 5, where we will be finishing our series of studies in 1 Peter and preparing our hearts for beginning 2 Peter next week. But this evening we pick up where we left off, and last week we were looking at chapter 5, verses uh, 1 through 7, and we were looking at the exhortations that Peter closes out this book with. And in this section, he's now just going through all of these different exhortations that pertain to suffering in Christ, but also have to do with serving others, caring for others, making sacrifices for others. And one of the things, in order to help others, in order to serve others, you have to be able to stand firm in the faith. One of the things you can't do is help someone if you yourself have nothing to offer. How do you encourage someone to stand firm in the faith if you're not standing firm in the faith? If you're telling people, don't panic, God is in control, and you're panicking, that's not a very inspiring encouragement to offer to others. And so what I'm going to suggest is that Peter is now realizing, you know, in order for the people he's writing to, to be an encouragement to others, they have to stand firm in the faith and look to God for his many blessings. And that's in the midst of suffering, of trials, of persecution. The person you want to be around in persecution during times of persecution, that person is the person who's standing firm during the time of testing and trials. You don't want to surround yourself with people who are compromising or are complacent or not standing up for the things they believe. And so this encouragement goes out to all of us. Let's open up in a word of prayer. Lord Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy and your encouragement to stand firm. And now we ask that by your Spirit's power, we would, as we serve others, be the kind of people that do inspire others, at least as you work through us, to inspire them. Help us to be good examples to those around us. Help us to be the kind of people that that others can look to and find strength and encouragement in because you're working and we're allowing you to work in and through our lives. May these words of Peter touch our hearts, guide our minds, direct our thoughts, and bring us to a place where we live our lives for you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we pick it up in verse 8, and let's just read verses 8 and 9. Peter goes on now to say, be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him. Standing firm in the faith because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of suffering. The same kind of sufferings. These encouragements may be brief and simple, but they are powerful. They strengthen us as we allow the Spirit to work through these encouragements. The first is to be self-controlled. Like, what does that mean? I've said this before. I remember as a young child, my teacher saying, Get control of yourself. You know, you, as a kid, you tend to get out of control, and your teachers or your parents will say, control yourself. 
being under control, really under the Holy Spirit's control, is an exercise in discipline. It really is discipline. It's really allowing yourself to be directed by the Holy Spirit, and especially in times of great stress. This is something that I think all of us are learning, especially over this last year. I know myself, God is really directing me and helping me to have my reaction be that of being under God's control when, I, when, I, when things get really stressful, difficult, challenging, even dangerous that my first reaction is to be under control, have control of myself, self-controlled. Because if your reaction isn't one of self-control, it's not going to be an appropriate reaction. The word actually means, in Greek, to be sober. To be sober. Now, some of you may not know what it means to be inebriated. I hope that's true for most of you. But I can tell you from experience, when you're not sober, you're not in control of yourself. One of the most easily identifiable aspects of being under the influence of another substance, whether it be alcohol or drugs, is that you are not in control of yourself. You're not in control of your mouth, the things you say. You're not in control of your body, the way you walk, the things you may do or act upon. The the way you may react oftentimes is impacted by the fact that you are under the influence of of something other than yourself, or even the Holy Spirit. But, you know, we talk about being under the influence of a substance, but people are under the influence of the world, under the influence of their flesh, under the influence of the devil, under the influence of a world system, and maybe even spiritual forces of wickedness. And when you're under those influences, by the way, drugs and alcohol are gateways. They're portals. When you allow yourself to be influenced or be under the influence of those things, you open yourself up to the influence of spiritual wickedness. And that's why when you're inebriated or whether you're uh, under the influence of these things, you will decide to do some rather ridiculous, absurd, even at times violent or demonic things. Because you're easily influenced when you allow yourself to be influenced by substances. That is, you're influenced by spiritual forces. So to be sober in spirit and in body is to be calm, to be calm, to be cool, collected in spirit. You know, that's one of the things I'm really working on, being calm. You know, you have to actively pursue calm in this world. Have you noticed that? You can't just get up and say, oh, I'm just going to relax. No, the minute you walk out the door, something happens. Something happens. I mean, I guess it was, uh, well, I won't mention who, but an individual that that most of us know who attends a church uh, was sharing a story about their son driving home on the highway. I believe it was Route 23, and they were on their way home, and some crazy person didn't like the fact that this individual didn't let them merge into the lane. You know, they might have had to wait 2.5 seconds. And tailgated this person's son almost all the way home. And then right before, threw something, whether it was a rock or something, out of the car, hit their car, the car spun, their car was totaled, and the person he hit's car was totaled. Because this individual threw... what I can only guess was a rock or something, at the car. Why? What motivated this person to do this? Well, clearly they weren't under control. 
they, or that they were. They were being controlled by rather dark forces. But imagine how, how influenced you have to be to actually go through with something like that. Well, they did. And, and, and thank God, both of the drivers of that car, of those cars, were okay. But the cars were totaled, and it could have been a fatal accident. They had the wherewithal to take down some information about the vehicle, and I'm glad to say they, they figured out who it is, and the person is going to be in trouble, hopefully. But when I see something like that, I realize that is the exact wrong way to respond to a situation. See, if you're calm, if you're cool, if you're collected, if you're sober, you think, oh, I'd love to throw a rock at that person. And then you stop and you think, what kind of a maniac would actually do that? You might, you might be like me and you might think about it. But to actually do it, you can't be calm. So what I'm working on doing in those situations is reacting with calm first. And you know what I've noticed? It really does make a difference, a good difference in my life. Now, that's a spiritual exercise, and the Holy Spirit can give you that ability to control yourself. After all, remember the fruit of the Spirit? What's the last one? Self-control. So yes, you can, through calming yourself or practicing proper breathing or exercise, you, you can calm yourself down, but that's not even really what I'm talking about. Those things are helpful. It's not a bad thing. But having your heart in the right place before God will help you to react in a calm, cool, collected manner. Let me tell you, the devil can do a whole lot less evil in and through your life if you approach things like this. So Peter says, be self-controlled. He says, be alert. Be alert. Because even if you're under control, even if you respond in the perfect way, there are maniacs out there, like the one I described or one I heard about, that are out of control. So you may be under control, but a lot of people out there out of control. And you know what I've noticed? You've probably been reading the same stories I've been reading, how many people have, I don't know if you want to call it COVID fever, or if you want to call it isolation syndrome. What's happened is people who are a little on edge, and there are a lot of them, have gone like way over the edge, and now that they're reintegrating in society under normal or more normal circumstances, they don't have the ability to control themselves. A lot of them have probably given themselves over to drug and alcohol in order to cope, but those that haven't still haven't learned to control themselves, so they're, they're acting out in very violent ways, attacking people because of the color of their skin or their ethnic background saying things that shouldn't even be said. Some of the things I'm hearing people say, things that are in print, anti-Semitic comments, things that anyone with any degree of self-respect and self-control knows, you don't say that, and yet people just blah. This last year, it's taken its toll on people's mental health as well, psychologically. So you have to be alert in this world because this world is out of control. The word for alert or be alert means to watch. You know, I see, I'm, I'm a little weird like this, but I see many times um, these situations in New York where someone's on a subway platform. And because I study self-defense, I, I look at it always from the perspective of self-defense. And the number one thing you can do to make sure you're assaulted on the subway platform is be looking at your phone. Not paying attention not aware of your surroundings, not looking behind you, standing too close to the platform. Many people are being pushed in front of trains because they're just not paying attention. 
Now, this has always been the case, but people are so distracted, they're not aware of their surroundings. Listen, the one place you definitely don't want to be looking at anything other than around you is the subway. If there's any place, it's definitely in New York, definitely in the subway. So be alert means you're aware of what's going on around you. The, The Holy Spirit can give you a spiritual sensitivity and discernment, but you also need to use your brain and your eyes and your ears and look around. I'm becoming more and more attuned to my surroundings the more I train, so that I'm constantly aware, not paranoid, not nervous, calm, but alert. We live in a world where you have to be alert. If you spend an afternoon babysitting, sometimes I have as many as three, okay? So you will find out what it means to be alert because three can run in three different directions, right? And there's just like no possible way you can deal with it, right? So you just got to kind of always be alert. Who's closest to the street? Who's running in that direction? There has to be a calmness. Can't be panic, but there has to be alertness. You can't like close your eyes for a second. Even a blink is too long, you know, with these little ones. Alertness is so important in our world and so many people are asleep at the wheel. So to watch, it means to give strict attention to, to be actively cautious. Now, why would Peter say these things? It almost sounds like a fleshly exhortation. It's not, but you can't just go to sleep in the spirit. You can't just, like, close your mind. Oh, you know, I don't really think about anything. I don't really worry about anything. I just kind of go through life. And not a, If you could, you can't anymore. Spiritually speaking, you have to be alert. Now, why? Why? I've given you some of the reasons practically why. But you can take all of those practical reasons and boil it down to verse 8, or part of verse 8 that we read already. Why? Your enemy, the devil... Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Uh, You don't think the devil has anything to do with that person on the subway platform who got up that morning and decided they want to push somebody in front of a train? You don't think the devil has, has, has anything to do with that person who gets in a white van and tries to abduct a child? You don't think the devil has something to do with these acts of violence that we're seeing on an increasing basis? Of course he does. But the devil is even more insidious than that because he's not only trying to harm us, he's trying to seduce us. To to, to get us away from trusting God and trusting in other things, man-made things, to protect us and keep us safe. The devil... I know every time a pastor or a preacher says the devil, people tune out. They're like, oh, here we go again. Here's another one. The devil's out to get me. But he is. And you may not want to hear it, but he is. The scripture says he takes those captive whom he will. When Paul writes to Timothy, the devil takes those captive at at his will who don't know the Lord. And you know something we learn here? He's out there trying to get any one of us and any one he can. So why would it be important to be self-controlled? Because if you're not, you're going to give in to the devil's schemes. We're not ignorant of his schemes. He's going to entrap you. A number of years ago, I was at the stop and shop here at the Clifton Commons. And this was before I was studying martial arts, before I was trained to respond appropriately. So I'm glad I did, but it was only the Spirit's help, by his help that I did. Some rather wacky individual, let's leave it at that, was in line in front of me, 
and uh, they something didn't add up right. You know those scanners? It was kind of at the beginning of some of those things. And there was change that was supposed to be returned because they paid cash, and the change didn't come out. So the guy was like, don't touch anything. So I'm like, okay, well, I'm not going to touch anything. We'll wait, we waited, we waited, nobody came over. And then the machine kicked in and said, put your stuff on the belt, and the belt started to move, and it started to scan my, my water bottles. I was buying water bottles, I think, for the church. And um, he turned around and looked at me and threw a punch at me. And like, literally took his fist, put this hand inches away from my face, and went, okay? Now, the first reaction was like, I can use the water bottle. It's a one-gallon water bottle. I got one in one hand and one in the other. I could do some damage. But I looked around, and it seemed like everybody's back was turned. Nobody saw it. And I thought, here's what happens. Here's how this plays out. I hit the guy in the head with a water bottle, and then you read about me in the paper as assaulting this perfectly wonderful individual for no reason at all. And I just paused, and something told me to say, you know, what you just did could be considered assault. And it was like, and he just kind of skulked away. But nobody was looking. Nobody saw it. I was looking to make eye contact with a manager or a cashier or somebody. Do you see what just happened? Somebody get the cops. This guy's nuts. I could have fallen into that trap so easily. But we're not ignorant of the devil's schemes. So, well, if he tried that now, I would have put him in a joint lock. It wouldn't have hurt him, but it would have stopped him from doing anything else. No, I would have. If if a fist is coming at me now, I don't even think about it, okay? And that's okay, because I didn't know the fist wasn't going to connect with his hand. It could have connected with my face. I can't take that chance, and I wouldn't. But I, I also wouldn't use a water bottle to knock him out, okay? So... What I'm learning is that we are living in a world where the world is constantly trying to entrap us as much as harm us. And you have to be prepared to respond appropriately to situations to protect yourself, but also not to be brought into a situation where you're exacerbating the situation or escalating the situation because that's what the devil wants as well. He's roaring about trying to get you into a situation like that. Believe me when I say it. Believe me. And it was true then, and it's true now. We must be aware that the devil is our enemy. You have an enemy. He's our opponent. He's our adversary in the faith. He's a slanderer. That is, he says things that aren't true. He's a false accuser. He works through those that will do likewise. He's hunting you as a lion hunts its prey. And I like to say it this way, you can choose to pray or be prey. So I, can, I really would consider praying up before you walk into this crazy world, even going to the supermarket. Because I've seen some crazy stuff happen in supermarkets. Gas stations, right? People fighting over gas. Didn't happen so much in our area, but in the South, after that pipeline uh, cyber attack, people were like getting into fist fights online for gas. The world is nuts. But the devil is charging people up. And if he can get you on the news rolling around on the ground with somebody, believe me, they'll broadcast to everybody what church you go to, what your name is, where you, go, you know, where you like to go, who you are, where you live. Don't fall into that trap. The devil's hunting you. He is. We must remain strong and immovable in our opposition to him. 
One of the other things I'm learning is all about how you stand. As it relates to self-defense, it's all about your stance, where your legs are. But it's true spiritually. Where do you stand? Who do you stand in? It's how you stand. Do you stand firm in the faith? Because if you do, you can deflect. You can, you, spiritually speaking, you can get out of those situations very easily if you stand firm in the faith. So I'm learning a lot, you know, about life and about self-defense, but a lot of these lessons are spiritual. And they're very helpful for me understanding how to respond in these dark days. We're engaged in a spiritual war that concerns each and every Christian in this world. Each and every Christian. You were drafted, whether you know it or not, into a spiritual war. And you're being attacked. And you need to realize it. And you need to respond appropriately. We are not alone in our call to suffer in Christ. Notice, it's not just us, but he's looking for someone to devour. (laughs) Anyone to devour. He goes on to say, resist him. Resist him standing firm in the faith because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kinds of suffering. Same kind of sufferings. We're not alone. You're not the only one. We're all experiencing this. And I don't know that that makes it better, but it's not out of the ordinary for you to be attacked in these ways that I'm describing. I'm giving you some examples, but there's all kinds of ways in which we're attacked. We are engaged in a spiritual war. Though not alone, we all suffer in Christ. We can inspire others by our determination to live victoriously in him. You see, we can inspire others. When others see, wow, he didn't punch back. Well, he, he, he didn't engage. He walked away. He got insulted and he didn't punch the guy in the head. When people see us not get engaged the way the world would, or when people see us do good in the face of evil, when people see us serve Christ while the world persecutes us, that is inspiring to other believers. That's why the martyrs or the witnesses throughout the century are are, are people who we hold up in high regard because they inspire us to respond appropriately to the devil's schemes and his attacks. And we can be people like that. We can inspire others by our determination to live victoriously for him. And we should be inspired by those who are being attacked by our mutual enemy. You know, during these attacks, one of the things, and I do believe they're going to get worse. I don't mean to be a doom and gloom guy, but I actually believe in times of revival, which I believe we're in. I actually believe we're in a time of great awakening. But I also know that during times of great awakening, the devil is as active as ever. There's more conflict during a time of spiritual awakening than during a time of spiritual slumber. The, the devil has to go on offense. You know, he, he, has to, he has to ramp it up. And he does. So does any wonder why we're seeing so much evil prosper in the world right now, but we're also seeing such, some really good things happen. People's eyes are starting to open up spiritually. People are starting to realize there's a Savior that died on the cross for their sins. Amen? But the devil... He's doing his very best to thwart the work of the Holy Spirit. Of course, he can't. But if you allow him in your heart, or you allow him to seduce you or to entrap you, then you're not standing firm. Watch your stance. Make sure that you're self-controlled and alert. 
That's the, really the, the last exhortation that Peter leaves us with. I think it's a powerful one. But then he goes on to say, hey, look, you, know, you can go through life looking at the negative, and, and you might interpret what I said as, oh, my goodness, wow, we got to get out there. i got to get my gloves on. You know, that's not exactly what I'm saying either, and it's not what Peter's saying, because look at verses 10 through 11. After saying that, he says, And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. See, he's not saying all is lost. He's not saying, oh, my goodness, this is such a dark world. Lord, come back quickly, please. No, it's not. It, we're not giving in. We're not giving up. We're being encouraged to stand firm. It's a very big difference between saying, oh, my goodness, run for the hills. The sky is falling. And stand firm. The attacks are coming. Be prepared. Be self-controlled. Be alert. But also, look for God's blessings. That's essentially what he's saying here because God, our God, is all gracious. He's graciously called us to share his eternal glory through Jesus Christ. Can I hear an amen? He will graciously strengthen us as we endure the suffering of this world in Jesus Christ. Peter's told us it's going to come. It's going to happen. Don't be surprised at uh, that it's happening. But when it happens, this is what we're told. That God, after it says, after you've suffered a little while, he will himself restore you and make you strong, first, uh, firm, firm and steadfast. I'm going to read that again. He will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. You see, you're not relying on your self-preservation skills. You're not relying on your spiritual wisdom or knowledge or your prayer life. You're relying on Christ. All of those other things just draw you closer to Christ, but it's Christ to whom you look when you are suffering and need strength. And so, restore. You know what that word means? It means to mend, to repair, to, com- to complete, to prepare, to strengthen, or perfect. It's the idea of you got a broken bone and it, it's, it's, it's fixed, it's restored, it's repaired. And God will do that. So even if they break your bones, God will repair you. Even if they, they brutalize you, God will mend you. And it'll make you strong. You know, this is very true, by the way, and you know this if you've ever broken a bone, that when your bone heals, well, it has to be set. But once it's set, and that's what it means to mend or restore, that when it repairs itself, when it heals, when it mends, that part of the bone is now stronger than it was before. It's just the way your body's made. So if you break your, your tibia, your fibula, your radius, your ulna, one of those smaller bones, uh, when it heals, or even a finger, it, it, it grows back, but it grows back stronger. You know, the same is true spiritually. When you undergo some type of suffering, you're strengthened through that suffering. You grow stronger through the suffering. And that's what it means here when it says, he himself will not only restore, but make strong. It means to make stable to place firmly, to set fast, to fix, to strengthen, or make firm. That's what God is doing through our suffering. And actually, the word or phrase, make firm, here means to strengthen one's soul. We're not really talking about broken bones. We're talking about your soul, your very conscious, your your spirit, who you are. God is strengthening you. He doesn't want you to go through life being a victim or having a victim mentality. 
I want you to be strong, and he's going to strengthen you, and you're going to suffer, and it's going to be tough, because life is tough, and the devil's after you. And Christians, we're at the top of the devil's list for persecution. So you better buck up. You better realize that this is what's coming. You better understand that it's coming your way and ask God to strengthen you. That's what Peter's saying to a group of people who are suffering. Makes sense. Finally, he says, make steadfast. I like this. It means to lay a foundation. To lay a foundation. If you build a house, the strength of the house is based on the foundation. To make steadfast is to lay a foundation to make it stable, or to establish something. So that's what God is doing in your life right now. Through suffering, through persecution, through difficulty, through trials, tribulations, testings, temptings even. Amen? So the devil, he's, he's doing this stuff thinking, oh man, I'm going to get this guy. But what he, all, he's, all he's really allowing is you to grow stronger. So yes, the devil is seeking to devour. Yes, the devil attacks us. Yes, we have to face spiritual wickedness in high places. But I read in Ephesians 6 that we're to stand, having done all we can to stand, to put on the armor of God. Notice he doesn't say run for the hills. You put on the armor. You know, again, one of the things I have to learn in martial arts is how to take a hit. Sometimes we spend 20 minutes just getting hit. Now we got pads. We're not getting hurt. But you have to get used to taking a hit. You, you can't go through life not being able to take a hit. There's a lot of Christians, they, they, you know, and that's it, they're done. They get hit once and they're done. You better be able to take a few shots because they're coming your way. How are you going to respond? Okay, so that's kind of, you know, a lot of what I'm going through in my own life mixed in with this exhortation. But listen, we're talking about a spiritual adversary. Might as well be talking about being in the ring with the devil. But look for God's blessings. There are blessings in the midst of suffering. And we've seen this here. We've talked about what God himself will do because he uses suffering in this world to build eternal character. Amen? That's what he's doing. And I like what he says in verse 11. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. Listen, our God is all powerful. Can I hear an amen? So that's a great encouragement. And what a way to end his letter. But now he closes it out with some personal greetings. And we'll go through them quickly. He now begins with some personal greetings, closing his letter to these Hebrew and Gentile Christians. And first thing he has to do is acknowledge his faithful brother Silas or Silvanus. Here's what we read. Look at the first part here. I'll read uh, verses, uh, just verse 12. It says, With the help of Silas, who whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Notice again, stand fast in it. Stand fast in it. This is about standing firm, being willing and able to take a hit. And as he says that, we realize, you know, Peter didn't do it alone. Are you trying to do this alone? Listen, if there was ever a time where you need fellowship, it's now. What did the devil pretty successfully do for a period of time over this last year? Got us out of fellowship with one another. Worst thing that could have happened to us. Now, some of us hung on. We had what we called our bubble, which a few people, which we, you know, we decided you get sick, I get sick. We'll just kind of like stay together. And, you know, and then we had, we had a Zoom, which, you know, I'm not a big fan, but, you know, it was better than nothing, I guess. And then, you know, then we slowly started to integrate, you know, fellowship from six feet away. But as we got back into regular fellowship, did you notice how all of a sudden you felt better? 
We're not designed to be alone as Christians. The, the word says where two or three are gathered is in our midst. It doesn't say where, you know, four or five are socially distanced, he's in our midst. Or where 18 are on Zoom, he's in our midst. Now, I know God can work through this. They, I, I'm not saying he can't. But listen, isn't it something to just be together? I've been giving more time to the fellowship break, you know, between the worship and the word, because who wants to break that up? Right now, that's just as important, and probably always has been, as everything we're doing. This, this fellowship, this face-to-face time, actually face-to-face. I look around, I see faces. Isn't that wonderful? Face-to-face time that we desperately need. Well, here's the thing. Peter wasn't doing any of this alone, and we're not designed to do it alone. There was a man by the name of Silas. He was a prophet, actually, the scripture tells us. He knew Peter as far back as the Jerusalem Council, which we'll be talking about on Sundays when we get to Acts chapter 15. It's about 50 AD. He was a prominent member of the church at Jerusalem. He was also a Roman citizen. He was one of two men chosen to accompany Paul and Barnabas on their return to the Gentile church in Antioch. They were the bearers of a decree that had been adopted by the Council of Apostles and Elders, essentially establishing that Gentiles didn't need to become Jews in order to become Christians. Silas was a minister, a Jewish minister, but a minister to Gentiles. He assisted Paul in his evangelistic labors at the church in Antioch in Syria, which was a, a, a Gentile church. Not everyone, not every Jew wanted to do that. Silas did. He was later chosen to be Paul's companion on his second missionary journey. And he ministered with Paul in Asia Minor, which is uh, modern-day Turkey and Syria, Philippi, uh, which was in Greece, and uh, Corinth, which is also in southern Greece. He didn't travel with Paul back to Jerusalem or to Rome when he returned with him from Corinth because his heart was for the people that Peter was writing to in this letter, the people of Asia Minor or modern-day Turkey. Apparently, he returned to Asia Minor and continued to minister to the churches, the very churches that this letter was written to. And at some point, Silas must have communicated to Peter the condition of these churches, how they were greatly suffering. And it seems that he he asked Peter to write a letter. But his heart was for the people. He said, Peter, it would be great if you could write a letter, encourage these people. This is what prompted, I believe, what prompted Peter to write the epistle to them clearly with the help of Silas. In fact, it seems impossible that this is solely the work of a Galilean fisherman, this letter. It's incredibly well written. The epistle is quite obviously the work of a man skilled and learned in fine Greek. In fact, it provides us with some of the best Greek in the New Testament, and it's much more literary than the Greek of Paul, who wrote many epistles. But Silas ultimately returned to Asia Minor with this very letter that we've been studying, Peter's letter. Why? To encourage the churches there to live for God, which is the theme of this epistle. And then he shares his final encouragement. I like what he says here. Encouraging you, I've written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God, stand fast in it. That's just a reminder of that final encouragement. The purpose of this letter was to encourage and to testify to God's grace, which he does frequently throughout. But the challenge of this letter was to stand fast in God's grace by living for God. Boy, we need to hear that. Learn to take a hit. That's about the best advice I can give you. You know, don't shrink away when the world comes after you. 
So many, so many Christians over this last year ran for the hills. Don't be afraid. Don't be frightened. Peter said that in this epistle. Don't be frightened. Don't be frightened of the things that they're afraid of. Really, this is, this is a great letter to encourage you to live for God. And sharing now his personal greetings, he says in verses 13 and 14, She, who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends her greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love and peace to all of you who are in Christ. And that closes out the letter. A few things I want to mention before we close for the evening. These are personal greetings. But he sends greetings on what we believe is on behalf of the church in Babylon, which was on the Euphrates River. So when he says, she who is in Babylon, some believe that he's talking about the church. And that's quite possible, and maybe even probable. But some believe that he may have also been referring to his wife, because his wife went with him on his missionary journeys. We learn that in 1 Corinthians 9, and also Peter says that in his letters. So this is really important. Um, He's sending greetings either from the entire church or from his wife, but the important thing is that she who is in Babylon, whether a group of people or actually his wife, have been chosen together with you, and they send their greetings. He's, He's encouraging them by letting them know, you're not alone. We're not alone. I'm not writing to you as one person. We're part of a family in Christ. So that's the various different interpretations that some people say. I think it could be both. certainly could be either or. But then he sends greetings from his son, John Mark. And that's why some people look at that and say, well, he's talking about his wife and then his son in the faith. But this man, John Mark, he was an early disciple of Jesus with a very interesting past history. So when he says... And so does my son Mark. Who is Mark? Well, he was from a very wealthy family and was probably born a Roman citizen. John was his Jewish name. Mark was his Roman name. His mother Mary lived in a large home, and they had a Greek slave, so they were very wealthy. Imagine, you know, a Jewish family with a Greek slave, so you can, again, deduce that they had some money. Barnabas was his close relative, and he seems to have been wealthy as well, according to Acts chapter 4. Uh, Mark and his mother were among the very first Christians in Jerusalem. Peter considered him a son in the faith. We see that here. But he also accompanied Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey. So Peter has some wonderful contacts and some wonderful associates. Paul does as well. Many of the same people. We do know, according to Acts 13, that Mark had a falling out with Paul due to his early return home. He was a young man. He They were dealing with sickness and difficulty, and Mark just wanted to go home early. If you've ever been on a missions trip, uh, you know that everyone experiences this. Some people admit it, some people don't. But everyone has a moment. If it's a week-long trip, I've taken two-week trips, but generally during that week, on on or about Tuesday or Wednesday of the week, you think to yourself, what am I doing here? I just want to go home. My stomach isn't right. I just want to eat normal food. I want to be able to eat food. I'm tired. I just want to, I want to, I remember my first trip to El Salvador. All I wanted was a comfy chair. I mean, it sounds so lame. But we were staying at an orphanage and the beds were a little short of a torture device. And 
there were no chairs that were comfortable. They had those plastic chairs that you buy in the supermarket. And far from being comfortable, they didn't help. You, you would rather stand. So I'm standing. I'm just, I just want to sit in a comfortable place. I couldn't get comfortable for a week. And we were doing this pastor's conference. And we were doing it at a hotel. And I thought, oh, oh, oh there's got to be a couch or chair an office chair, something I can just sit in for five minutes. Would you believe I couldn't find one comfortable chair? So I had to resort to sitting in the bathroom. Not exactly the most comfortable chair, but at least it wasn't that plastic chair. Now that sounds lame, but everybody has a moment on a missions trip where your flesh is tested and, you, and, and it gets the better of you. And I think that's what happened with Mark. I think Mark just had it. <laughs> I know usually by Thursday, I'm like, that's my day. If I can make it through Thursday, we're good. Because Friday, we sometimes do some great ministry. And then Saturday, or sometimes we go to the beach on a Friday to rest. And, you know, if you can make it that far, you're okay. But missions trips are challenging to your flesh. Extremely challenging. So I'm not calling this guy a lightweight. Uh, I'm just saying that he went home and Paul and Mark and Barnabas, they got into it because Mark had had enough. He was at the center of that controversy, and as a result, he and Barnabas, who was a relative of Mark, uh, well, you know, they became ministry partners when Paul and Barnabas were no longer partners because they got into it. So Mark was at the center of that controversy. You can read about it in Acts uh, 15, Acts 13. Uh, But then God had created two missions teams then, because then there was Paul and Silas and Barnabas and Mark. So God still worked. But Mark had obviously resolved his differences with Paul since that incident many years ago because he was commended by Paul to the Colossians to minister in Asia in Colossians 4. And it seems that then he spent some time with Peter before returning to Rome. And at the end of Paul's life when he was in prison, he paid the highest compliment to John Mark when he said, he is helpful to me in the ministry. Send Mark. I want Mark. He's helpful to me in the ministry. He's also best known for writing the gospel of Mark, the gospel that bears his name. As the close attendant and interpreter of Peter, he was given tremendous insight. So this young man that had touched so many lives continues to bless us to this day every time we read his gospel. This was another associate of Peter. And then Peter extends to them an intimate greeting in the fellowship of Christ. We haven't seen much of this over the last year. Greet one another with a kiss of love. I think we've gotten back to shaking hands, maybe even a hug. I ain't seen anybody kiss yet. That is on the cheek. You don't see too much of that unless you're family, unless they're little babies. Can't resist them. But, you know, we haven't quite gotten back there yet. I I hope we will, but maybe not just yet. But he extends this intimate greeting in the fellowship of Jesus Christ. Now, the intimacy of the early church is revealed in the practice of what they called the holy or agape kiss. It wasn't a romantic kiss. It was just a friendship kiss. It was a, it was a hug and a kiss that meant you love that person as family. And he's extending that to these people. It was customary to greet one another in this way during the worship service. And until recently, we had a very warm greeting in our church that very much included that type of intimacy. But Paul also referred to this practice in the closing of his letters. And finally, at the last part of this last verse... In verse 14, he says, Peace to all of you who are in Christ. 
You know, that's a benediction. It's a small one. It's a short one, but it's a benediction. That is a blessing. He closes this letter with the blessing of God's peace to all God's people. I just want to receive that from Peter and from the Holy Spirit because don't we need a little peace? You know, I mean, peace. Hasn't been a lot of it. This, this last year can hardly be described as peaceful. Even though they call them peaceful protests, I, I never saw one. They were all rather violent by my estimation. I've seen very little and experienced very little peace in the world. But in Christ, peace is also like self-control, a fruit of the Spirit. And he extends peace to all God's people, and it's only God's people that can receive this peace. God's peace is greater than all the troubles and distresses the world can bring, all the persecution, trials, and all the things that come our way. God's people experience God's peace through God's Son, Jesus Christ, as they live for God. And I'll close with a reading of a scripture we have mentioned many times before, Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. In Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, we read, Do not be anxious about anything. Anxiety is the opposite of peace, right? Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, thank you for this precious study in your word. We thank you for your many exhortations and encouragements that we've received over the last couple of months. And now as we prepare our hearts to go into Second Peter, a very different letter with the same author. Uh, Lord, we pray that we would continue to just glean and receive all that you have for us. We know that when we open your word, that's how we receive your peace. That's how we receive the fruit of the Spirit. By being in your word where you can speak to our hearts and the Holy Spirit can, can encourage us and build our character. So thank you for meeting us in your word this evening. Help us to be the kind of people that not only preach the gospel, but live the gospel, the truth. The truth that you came and died on a cross for us sinners. Because we were in need of salvation, you died. You gave your life and paid the price for our sins. Rose again on the third day, ascended into heaven, where you ever lived to make intercession on our behalf. Oh, Lord God, but you've ascended into heaven and promised that you're coming again to judge the living and the dead. And we believe that gospel truth. Because we've given our lives to you, we call on you, and we know that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Lord, we thank you that you've saved us by the blood of Jesus on the cross and his resurrection from the tomb. Oh, Lord God, may that truth be in our lives, may it be shared from our lives, and may those around us hear it, and we pray they would receive it. We ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.